Hey, it's Jamie Scrimger. When I became a stepmom, I quickly realized that while moms are encouraged to keep it real, there's a big double standard when it comes to stepmoms. So I decided to start the conversation myself. Thriving as a stepmom doesn't just come from conversations about being a stepmom now. Here we dive into marriage, relationships, personal growth, and more. My mission, inspire you to live a kick-ass life while bringing you along as I create my own. This is the Kick-Ass Stepmom Podcast. Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Guys, so I don't know if you've got this vibe or not from me, but over the last year or so, I've been really into doing a lot of healing. It's like I just can't stop diving into it all. And honestly, it has been a really hard process. It's been a bit of a lonely process, but it has been extremely freeing. And for me, so much has changed since I started to dive into this work, you know, like healing my past and healing the stories I've been telling myself and diving into my insecurities and my fears and my wounds and just all of that fun stuff. And at the beginning of being a mom and a stepmom, I was not like this. I was really just trying to survive and be a good stepmom and be a good wife and be a good mom. And I was just trying to manage in the present. It was just kind of like, I just keep swimming, trying to keep my head above water. Don't let anyone know that you're struggling kind of mentality. But then the more that I dove into things like therapy and personal growth books, the more I realized just how much my childhood and my experience with divorce of my parents, just my experience as a child in general has impacted how I show up in the present. It's impacted how I perceive situations, how I process emotions. And for such a long time, and, you know, even still a little bit now, it was all about perfectionism and trying to control everything that was going on in my family and that was going on in my marriage and going on in my relationships and going on with the ex. And it's been healing to dive into why I felt the need to do that. It's like, okay, like what is really going on here? What really matters is what I'm doing working. Where does this come from? And one of my favorite quotes is from Gabby Bernstein. If you've taken the masterclass or in the membership, you've heard me say it a million times, but it's our triggers show us where we are not healed. And it is so easy to be like, well, I'm triggered because the ex is doing this. And my stepkids don't listen. Now they're leaving canola bar wrappers all over. And my husband doesn't support me. He doesn't understand. And they don't make me a priority. Or my mom did this to me, whatever your storyline is. And yes, relationships are complicated. Life is hard. Relationships are hard. But dealing with our past and our origin wounds, as today's guests refer to them, as it just plays such a huge role in how we manage our day-to-day life. So it's a long intro, but today's guest is Vienna Farron. She's a licensed family and marriage therapist, and she is the author of Origins of You. And I started reading this book when we were at the cottage in the summer, and I could not put it down. It's hands down one of the most impactful books that I have ever read And I'm a personal development junkie, so I've read a lot of books. And I'm just so grateful to be able to get her on the show and share this conversation with you. Because I know if you want to do this work, if you want to dive into this, this will really change the game for you. So she dives into, well, her work is really about origin wounds that we have from our childhood and how those wounds show up. And for me, it was an abandonment wound, a prioritization wound, a belonging wound. And I know that so many of you can relate to that. When I was reading the book, I was like, whoa, I have never felt so seen. So again, I'm so thrilled to be able to have her on at the pod. We talk about origin wounds, divorce, and co-parenting, and how our parents' divorce affected us as adults. She also comes from a family whose parents were divorced, and how origin wounds aren't attack on our parents. Like, I know there have been times when my own parents have felt almost offended. Well, not almost. They've felt offended by things that I've shared and talking about childhood trauma and things like that. And it really isn't a attack on our parents. It's just an open and honest conversation. And so we dive into that and we talk about relational self-awareness where control issues really come from. So if you're a control freak like me or recovering control freak, this will really resonate with you. Basically guys, this episode is going to save you hundreds of dollars in therapy. So grab a copy of her book. I will link it in the show notes for you and enjoy this conversation. Let's dive in. All right. So for those who maybe aren't familiar with your work, can you explain the origin wounds? Like, what are we talking about here today? 
<laughs> sure. So I am a marriage and family therapist and my background is in understanding the family systems that we grew up in. And I work with individuals, couples and families, adult families now. And yeah, like so much of the work requires us to look at what it was like for us growing up. And the first times there are ruptures in areas of our lives that have us questioning our worthiness, right? Our value to someone. If we are prioritized by someone, if we feel safe in our environment, if we can trust the people around us or what's happening or not happening and whether we feel a part of something. And I use the language of origin wounds. The first time something happens that really sets the foundation and the framework for this belief system that we hold about ourselves or other people or the world around us that has us questioning our worthiness, belonging, prioritization, safety, and trust. When I sat down to write the book, I was like, okay, what are all of the wounds that all of us could possibly ever have? And I had scribbled down so many different ones. And ultimately these five really felt like they did encompass sort of the human experience. I don't like to put labels on things, but it feels like a really good framework for folks to be like, ooh, do I struggle with feeling worthy? Do I struggle with feeling like I belong? Do I feel like I'm always on the outside? Do I feel othered? Do I always feel different? You know, do I feel prioritized by the important people in my life? Do I feel a sense of trust around me and safety around me? Right. And so those those wounds really did feel like they were the core of the human experience. I've worked with over 25,000 hours of clients to this point beyond that now. And I just see that time and time again. And, you know, for me, my work is looking back at the families we grew up in. It does not mean that everything happens there, but it's the place that I begin my work. It's the place that I start because we know that our family systems are our first education for all of this. And it's these relationships that let us know out of the gate whether we are those things or are not those things. Because as kiddos, we understand ourselves through other people first. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get any backlash from clients who are like, no, 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 my childhood was great. Like this doesn't like, let's just like focus on the present. Yes. You know, and they're <laughs> reluctant to go back and be like, no, I had a great childhood. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually have some clients still and we chuckle about it now. Like I've been with some of my clients for, you know, many years and they'll get a good laugh out of it where they're like, I remember that first session when you were asking me and I was like, no, I have a perfect childhood. And like, look at where we are now. And yeah, there's people who are a little resistant to it and I get it. You know, it's like, Oh, there's so many reasons why we don't want to go back there. We're scared of opening up Pandora's box. We don't want to see what's there. A lot of people hold the story and the narrative that our parents, the adults in our lives did the best that they could with what they had. We don't want to be ungrateful. We believe that they were so much better than their parents were to them, right? So the grandparents to the parents, right? And so it's like, oh, well, they did such a better job than what they experienced. And there's so many reasons where it's just like, I just want to be focused on the thing that I came in to talk about. I want to be focused on the answer I'm trying to find. And in all of this work, what I have found is that we have to go back in order to answer this question that is present day. You know, this thing that's right in front of you that you want to find a solution to. If you can't find that solution quickly, you know, if you can't make a change, a behavioral change quickly, you find yourself coming back to patterns over and over and over again, it's a pretty good indicator that there's irresolution from your past. And I would encourage people to explore their origin wounds. So one of my favorite things in the whole world is waking up early, starting a fire and sitting all cozy with a hot cup of coffee. And my second favorite thing is getting into cozy clothes or PJs at the end of a long day and just crawling into bed. My daughter Reese is always like, mom, you just love to wake up and you love to go to bed. It's like your two favorite times. And it's true. I do. I love crawling into bed with a book and I love waking up and just enjoying the calm before the storm. And one thing that makes this experience even better is having the best comfortable pajamas to get in bed in. 
Now, Cozy Earth is my go-to. You guys know this. If you've been listening to the podcast, they've been a long-time sponsor, and I am a huge, huge fan of this brand. Made from viscose from bamboo, they're temperature-regulating and literally unreal. I have a few different pairs now, and I'm obsessed. Cozy Earth is ethically produced. The fabric feels like a cloud. It's machine washable, and it really does take your sleep and comfort to the next level. And of course, I have a code for you. You can use the code COZYJAMIE40 to save 40% off your order. Yeah, 40%. That is huge. COZYJAMIE40 to save 40% off your order. Just go to jamiescrimter.com forward slash Cozy Earth, and I will send you right to their website. I'm also a lover of their bamboo sheets, their loungewear, plush socks, and their beautiful waffle robe. I start and end my day with Cozy Earth, and that is not an exaggeration. Again, the long sleeve bamboo PJ set is my go-to. My second fave is the bamboo jogger set. Highly recommend Cozy Earth. It's going to change your sleep. www.jamiescrimshaw.com forward slash Cozy Earth and use the code COZYJAMIE40 for 40% off. You can also go straight to their website and use the code COZYJAMIE40 for 40% off. Tell me if this feels like you. Sometimes you just need a little midday pep talk to get refocused and aligned. Sometimes you need to regroup and reset your energy after getting hijacked by a stressor or something or just getting in the weeds of the day-to-day. Sometimes you need a reminder of the goals that you've set for yourself and what you really want for your life. You want to meditate. You know you need to meditate, but you have so much to do that you have a hard time sitting down and just being still. I personally am a yes to all of these things, which is why I am so obsessed with the Superhuman app. So I had the creator of Superhuman, Mimi Bouchard, on the podcast a while back. I highly recommend listening to that episode. She is such a gem. But I learned about this app after listening to Mimi on another podcast, and I have been hooked ever since. It's very rare that I do just a sitting, quiet meditation now. It's always the Superhuman app. So Superhuman has pioneered a new approach to guided meditation. It's not magic. It is science. Superhuman meditations, they're different. There's no sitting in silence. In fact, people who don't even like to meditate love the superhuman guided meditations. 91% of users feel a shift after their first meditation. And I know I definitely did. So there are meditations for when you're just doing things in your day-to-day life, like cleaning or making dinner, getting ready in the morning or running errands, working out, journaling. The meditations are set to music to inspire and calm and motivate you. And there really is a superhuman meditation for nearly every moment of the day, from grocery shopping to working out to everything in between. Superhuman also has intention setting morning and nighttime meditations to bookend the day. I love doing the getting ready meditations in the morning. It just sets me off on the right foot. So again, back to my neuroscience, these meditations are truly game-changing, and I have been using them since I discovered them, and I cannot recommend Superhuman enough. I also have a sweet deal for you. So here is the lowdown. You're not going to believe this. You can use the code KICKASSSTEPMOM when you check out and get one month free on top of their two-week free trial. So that is six weeks completely free of Superhuman. So head to www.superhuman.app forward slash register, put in that code at checkout, and you're going to get six week free trial and you're going to be hooked. I can't wait to hear how much you love it. So www.superhuman.app forward slash register, put in the code kickassstepmom, get six weeks free. Shoot me a DM. Let me know how much you love it. You know, what do they say when you get married, you end up having the same argument with your partner like over and over and over again Mm. until you figure out what is going on. (laughs) Do you find, well, obviously I know because I dove into your book and I've done a lot of the work Mm -hmm. myself, but how do you see people's past or their origin wounds showing up in maybe the arguments or the frustrations that they have in their marriage now? Oh, yeah. I mean, constantly, right? It's like like every single day, (laughs) every single day in every single way, because at the core of what we are fighting about, right? Like when you think about whatever conflict you get into with a partner or even a family member, right? Just an intimate relationship in your life. And you're like, okay, we could be fighting about this or this or this, right? Whether it's the toilet seat or the towel or whatever, you know, these things that we've heard so many times, 
before. It doesn't matter what the content is that you're fighting about. It's about whether or not you're struggling to feel important to that person, whether you're struggling to feel prioritized by them, whether you're struggling to feel seen and respected by them, right? It's like at the core of it, Whatever the circular motion is, is going to revolve around something that I think winds up repeating itself over and over again. And what I would say is that whatever that experience is, is familiar, right? It's uncommon. It doesn't mean that it never happens, but it's uncommon that we find ourselves at this point in our lives where we're experiencing a feeling for the first time right? Like a sensation that like at 38, I have never felt deprioritized before. You know, it's like, it's uncommon to have that happen. And so I'm always looking for this thing that's on repeat in your relationship right now. This thing that causes frustration, hurt, pain, irritation, activation, trigger, rupture, whatever you want to call it, right, is going to be familiar to an experience in your life before. And likely we're going to find something in your family of origin, right? The family system or systems in which you grew up. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly looking for that link right? Because it's like, oh, this thing that we're fighting about here reminds me of not feeling good enough or like conditional love in the same way that how I grew up with it, right? Mm -hmm. So we're looking for what feels familiar. That's a really good way to sort of find the history. Yeah, for sure. I openly talk about this with my community. So I think back to my childhood. So my parents divorced really young. It's in the second, third grade and moved in with my mom, but then just wasn't working. So I moved out in grade four. I was Mm -hmm. like the little advocate daughter who was like, I'm not staying here. I'm moving back with dad. And I actually lived with my dad just on my own and and the kids, I called them the kids, Mm -hmm. but my siblings came with us on the weekends. And you're the oldest or I was oldest. Yeah. And my mom never, we didn't really have a relationship. It's been kind of on and off. I think she was mad I left her. Like she had her own wounds and her own stuff going on. But growing up, I never felt like a priority Mm because, you know, my dad did the best he could, but he had his own stuff and never felt good enough. Always felt like someone was going to leave me. I'm a huge control freak, like Mm -hmm. huge. And it was interesting. I never, ever remember feeling bothered by my parents' divorce. You know, if you would have told me that it bothered me, I would say no idea. But then, you know, as I became an adult, my aunts were like, no, don't you remember this happened and this happens? Like I totally blocked out a lot of those memories. But when I get together with my husband and he has three kids and he's co-parenting with his ex, Mm -hmm. so he's come with a lot of stuff and there's a lot of things to communicate with Mm -hmm. and he has a big job. And it was crazy how that abandonment wound and Mm -hmm. that feeling like I'm not a priority came up in our relationship. Like anytime he was late or anytime he never would, you know, forget to communicate something Mm -hmm. about the kids to me or things like that. And I always say, if I didn't go back and do the work, because now when I'm triggered or if he's late or he hasn't communicated, because it's just, he's not a great communicator. What Mm -hmm. he thinks is a big deal is not a big deal to me and vice versa. Right. I literally to be able to go, no, 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 this is this is that happening. This is Mm -hmm. the abandonment wound. And there's so much power in that. I know there's so many people who are reluctant to do this work and to go back because it is really uncomfortable. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially if you feel like your parents did the best that they could, you almost feel like you're, it's not that you're attacking them or criticizing them. You're just like calling it like it is what it is. Right. And there's going to be ways that we kind of mess up our kids a little bit too. Like we're all going to have our Mm -hmm. stuff, Mm -hmm. but be able to do that work and name it in the moment is wild. I said, we would have been divorced if I didn't do this work. We would not have made it. Yeah. This work is not meant to throw parents or the adults under the bus. We're not here to like villainize them. It's to look Mm -hmm. at it and name what is. And it's so hard for people to do that because we want to explain the pain away. We want to rationalize it. We want to distort it in some way. We want to minimize it or invalidate it. And a lot of times it's like, you know, we know for certain we are who we are because of the things that happened. And for some people they're like, well, I wouldn't be who I am today without what happened. And a colleague of mine, Alexander Solomon, says our pain and our 
gifts are next door neighbors. And I love that quote because it's so powerful mm. in response to that, because it's like, it's true. Our gifts often come from this place of responding to our pain and our trauma and our wounding. And at some point though, in our lives, I always say like your gifts will not leave you just because you heal, right? People sometimes are really scared that this edge that I have Mm -hmm. in this area of my life somehow is going to disappear. You know, if I address something or if I heal something, I say, that's not going to happen. You are still going to be excellent, you know, in all of these ways and all of the gifts that you have, but we have to be motivated by our healing instead of motivated by our pain. And we must be able to name and acknowledge our pain properly in order for us to move with it. Pain is going to have a grab on us, right? Like if you think of pain as an entity that has feelings to it, if you will, right? Which maybe Mm -hmm. feels like a little bit of a stretch to some people, but I'd encourage you to like humor me for a moment. It's like if pain had feelings, right? Why would it want to be unacknowledged? Why would it want to be avoided? Why would it want to be told, oh no, that doesn't really matter or they did the best that they could. So we're not going to address you, right? Like if pain has feelings, which I would argue, right? If pain lives inside of us, then it does, right? What it wants is to be acknowledged and to be honored and to be seen for what happened. And That's the point of this work is not, pain is not out to get us. It's not out to destroy our lives. It's not cynically rubbing its hands together to put you in another pattern yet again, because it thinks it's funny, right? It is doing this so that you can turn back around to it and acknowledge it. And when we acknowledge it, we know like it's grip on us loosens. Mm -hmm. And when we acknowledge our pain, when we see it for what it is what it was, right? Then its grip on us doesn't have to be so strong. And that is the work of this book, right? Is to, if there's unwanted patterns in your lives today that you can't shake, then you have to look back at the origin pain that is motivating these patterns and keeping us looping, right? Because every time we loop, it's an opportunity for us to do it differently, but without new information, without processing, without witnessing, without grieving is very hard for us to be in relationship with it differently than we have before. Mm -hmm. Now you talk about going back in your work and a lot of examples in your book, going back and, you know, being with yourself when you first experienced that emotion, you know, Mm -hmm. going back and sitting with your childhood self. Why is that so powerful? Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about that process and what it looks like? Yeah, I think as kids were, and because so much of our pain and wounding happens as kiddos, that there's so many of these ruptures that take place in these early years. What happens as children is we just survive it, right? We just get through it. We white knuckle our way to the other side and we go on with life. And I think that there's something so powerful, and I know this professionally and personally, of what it's like to be with that little human and sit with that individual and witness and grieve. I also had parents who divorced. They went through a nine-year divorce process that started when I was in first grade. And I too, if you had asked me, many, many years ago, if my parents' divorce had affected me, I would have said like, absolutely not. (laughs) I was like, no, I'm good. I'm fine. Right. And that was one of the roles that I had taken on as a kiddo. My parents were crashing and burning. That's how I describe it. There was a lot of gaslighting, manipulation, paranoia, emotional flooding, highly conflictual, very, very, very chaotic and crazy making. I don't use that word lightly, but truly, you know, that's what was happening in the system. I'm an only child. And so as this like little human in this family system who sees both of her parents crashing and burning and not well, I believed that I had to pretend to be okay and fine because there wasn't room for me to not be fine. They had taken up all of the space of not being fine from my perspective. And I think that part is really important. Like they might sit here and be like, no, there absolutely was room for you to not be fine. And we could have held that. The reality of that doesn't matter, right? My perspective of it, 
right? My perception mm-hmm. of what was happening is that there wasn't room for me that I needed to be okay. I needed to be unaffected in order to essentially positively contribute to what was happening here. I not being okay would have put them over the edge. That's the belief that I held. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think here's this tiny little human, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, right? Going through this process, which was a very long process, very drawn out. Obviously, nine years is very long. We know that. And I just pretended and pretended and pretended. And I got good at things. I was good at sports. I was good at violin. I was taking another language. I put myself in to all of these other things that allowed me to be distracted away from what was happening, my gifts, right? I got good at all of these things as a way of distracting myself away from the pain. Do, 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 fast forward, right? Here I'm an adult going through life, relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm telling this story. I will get to your question. I'm in my mid late twenties and I'm in a relationship the person's ex comes back into the picture. She wants to be back with him. He's trying to decide whether to go into that relationship or stay in the relationship with me. Like, I'm fine. I totally understand. Take all the time you need. This must be so hard for you. I'm okay. I'm unaffected. Right. I'm like going through these motions. And I remember having a conversation with a friend where it all just clicked in. And I was like, oh, yeah, there is the same role that I embodied as a kiddo being embodied now as a woman, as an adult. And I had done that my entire life. I presented as, you know, the unaffected, fine person. I wanted to be the quote unquote cool girl who had no boundaries, was easygoing, so easy that it would be impossible for someone to want to leave me essentially. And I remember this clicking in and I remember, you know, I picked up the phone. I called the guy, said, I'm going to exit this situation because I'm actually really affected by this and I'm really hurt by what's going on and it doesn't feel respectful and it wasn't respectful. And, you know, I ended things that night and I remember the first time that I had said out loud that I wasn't okay, that I was affected by something, that I wasn't just fine. And that was a really new, I mean, it might sound simple for people who don't struggle with this, but for people who struggle with this, like this was a hard thing to get out of my mouth. It was hard to formulate those words and let that come out of my mouth. And it wasn't this empowering moment. Like I dropped the mic afterwards. I was like on the bathroom floor crying afterwards. And you know, this wasn't an easy thing, but I just remember how important it was for me to say that and really pivot and begin to go down a very different path. And to come back to your question, it would be one thing to be like, okay, I said the thing. Great. Like, I'm not going to say that I'm fine when I'm not fine anymore. I'm just going to tell people the truth and be my authentic self, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But what I really had to do was I had to revisit her, me, little me. I had to revisit the decades, but really was going back for me to the time in my life where I remembered where like I stand out the most to myself. And for some people, that's a particular year age. For some people, they might notice multiple ages for themselves when you're like, how old are you when you think about your younger self? Right. And for me, I was usually somewhere between seven, eight, and nine. Mm-hmm. And I had to revisit her and spend time with her and acknowledge what it was like for her as seven, eight, nine to go through what she went through, what it was like for her to constantly be saying that she's fine or unaffected or pretend like she's not hearing things that she's overhearing and spend time with her. Cause it's one thing as a grown adult to be like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. Here's my commitment to myself. And it's another thing to slow down with your little self, revisit her, reconnect with her and bear witness to her. And so what that would look like for me, for example, when I was a kid, I would often perch myself atop the steps at my mom's house and I would listen in. There was like a little opening down to her, like sort of living 
dining area where I would listen in on the conversations that she and my father were having. I also got really skilled at picking up the extra phone in the house and you'd like wait oh, until yeah. The, yeah, right. It's like you wait until they're screaming at each other and you pick it up so that they don't hear the click. It's like you get really skilled, really talented at this. And I would listen in to hear both sides of what was going on. I was so good at that too. Oh yeah. You become so good at it. And I would close my eyes and I'd bring myself into a moment that I recalled. And I would just perch myself next to little me Mm. and just watch her go through what she was going through, listening into the fighting, watching something that was unbearable, experiencing something that was so hard. And I would just watch her and be there with her. And sometimes there's a little bit of engagement with little me where I would maybe reach out my hand or ask her if she wanted a hug or you know something like that. But it was so important to bear witness because all of our healing as human beings has to have witnessing take place. We as humans want to be seen and heard and understood. And there's something that's very beautiful and profound that happens when someone else can do that for us. This incredible gift. But not to be overlooked is bearing witness to ourselves. Not to be overlooked is actually pausing without any of the distractions of minimizing or saying they did the best that they could or making excuses or invalidating it in any way and just bearing witness and being present to what that experience was like for your younger self, for little you, and just holding that space. And I'm a real believer that witnessing, bearing witness is what leads us to grief, right? That leads us to the authentic expression of our emotion that rises to the surface when we bear witness. And so this part of, I talk about it in the book, right? The origin healing process, right? Which is like going through these steps of acknowledging what our wounds are, bearing witness, right? It's like bringing ourselves back into this first moment. And for some people, they can't remember the first time. And so you just pick a time, any time, even if it's the last time, right? To bear witness where there is a rupture in safety or trust or prioritization or belonging or worthiness and allow that grief to present and be there. When we do this work, then these moments, and Jamie, you were talking about it before where you're like, if I didn't know this, like if I had not done this work, then these moments when my husband doesn't communicate something to me, or he's, you know, prioritizing work, or he's prioritizing the kids and he's like doing all these things. And I'm sort of bottom of the list, right? If I don't do this work, then I'm going to react from this place, right? This place of irresolution around prioritization. Now it doesn't mean that it doesn't feel a certain way. It doesn't mean that you don't get activated at all now. But what it means is that when there's an activation and we've done this work, the pause between an event or something happening and then the way we respond elongates because we're like, ooh, I know what this is, right? Or like, ooh, what's familiar about this? What's happening right now? Mm -hmm. What do I notice you know, what's old about this, what's historical about this, right? And when we do enough of this work, right, there's an opportunity for the way in which we respond to what's happening to be different than the way that we normally respond. Because what happens when we're in pain, most of us, right, don't communicate super well. We're not like angels in conflict. We're not moving through our boundaries in this healthy way, right? We participate in a way that's really dysfunctional, Right. And so our work is that when we do this healing work and we really sit with the witnessing and the grieving, it gives us a chance to change our behavior and respond very differently. So why is it important to revisit with our younger self? Right. Because it's a must. It's required. Mm -hmm. It is what allows us to actually do the witnessing properly because witnessing ourselves as adults is one thing, but witnessing ourselves when we went through the hard stuff in the first place is another thing that really just can't be overlooked if we want to make the changes Mm -hmm. that we want to see for our lives and our relationships. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I find a lot of comfort in, I'll look back on moments of my childhood and just little situations that I'm on my bed feeling alone or feeling like I'm not a priority or, Mm -hmm. you know, 
whatever's going on and just being the adult. I don't even know if when I'm imagining it, it's me giving it to her or if it's just another person, Mm -hmm. but just acknowledging that feeling or saying, you know, you're going through a lot and I want you to know that, you know, just like you are seen, you are heard, like you matter. Mm -hmm. And even just imagining those interactions, it's crazy how I feel different in the present day, Mm -hmm. almost immediately, right? Just like witnessing it. Yeah. Witnessing it. It sounds so cheesy if you're not in a place to get there. You're like, what are we doing here? Like, okay. Uh But it's, it's wild. Yeah. It really is about calling it what it is, right? It's like, if you did not feel important in those moments, you don't need to tell her you are so important, right? What you're saying is I'm so sorry that the adults Mm -hmm. around you didn't operate in such a way that you knew you were important, right? It's like, it is acknowledging that because little us, we know if somebody's blowing some steam Mm -hmm. where you're like, you're amazing. And you're like, that's not what my experience was, right? It's like (laughs) little us, like, you know, kiddos are so dialed in. They know what's true. They know what's not true. They see between the lines. They're the most conscious people in the room, right? It's like, you cannot fake it with them. And so when you're revisiting a younger version of you, right? This like witnessing this acknowledgement, it has to be the acknowledgement of what was true for them. Mm -hmm, For sure. And you're right. It's a funny thing, I think, for a lot of people to imagine and can sometimes feel a little peculiar. But once you start to peel back some of these layers, I think it will start to make sense as to why this is really beautiful and important work to do. Mm -hmm. So it's the new year. And while I'm not into New Year's resolutions per se, I'm all about setting intentions. And my intention for 2024 is to look and feel my best. And in order to do that, hydration is key. Personally, I try to have at least four 40 ounce Stanleys. So like, you know, those big tumblers that everyone's carrying around on Instagram. I try to have about four of those a day and it has changed the way that I feel. But it's not just water in the Stanley. At least one of my tumblers each day has element salt in it. Element is my go-to electrolyte drink. I have been drinking it for years. They've been a longtime sponsor of the podcast, and honestly, I'm just obsessed. Now, a growing body of research has revealed that optimal health outcomes occur at sodium levels that are two to three times the government recommendation. Salt has got a bad rep, but it is not a bad thing. We actually need it. So Element is a delicious electrolyte drink that is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. And you know, most electrolyte drinks contain sugar and other junk, but Element is different. It has everything you need and nothing that you don't. There are no BS ingredients here. So 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. I drink it every single day. I drink it in the morning, either before or after a workout, before or after I indulge in cocktails. If I am having a little bit of a hangover, Element definitely helps. I'm actually sipping one right now because sometimes in the afternoon when I want a snack or a coffee, I go for an element instead. It's kind of like a little treat. I just love the way it tastes, specifically the watermelon flavor. Now, Darren and my stepson, Ethan, love the lime, but watermelon and raspberry are it for me. So if you are interested in trying element, go to www.drinkelement.com forward slash kickass stepmom. And if you order through that link, you'll also receive a free sample pack so that you can try all the flavors. So that's www.drinklmnt.com slash kickass stepmom. And if you order through that link, you're going to get a sample pack with all of the flavors. So this way you can figure out which one you love the most. Proper hydration is key. www.drinkelement.com forward slash kickassstepmom to get a free sample pack with purchase. Hello, 2024. Post-holidays and the start of New Year call for a relationship reset, at least for Darren and I. We've actually been doing a lot of talking about how we can do things better this year. We've spent a lot of time reflecting on last year, what worked, what needed work, what we can do to communicate better, and how we can prioritize our relationship. And we've been spending a lot of time with our calendar and just being very deliberate and open about our priorities for 2024. We both have some big goals individually and as a couple and as a family. So we really want to stay accountable. Now, you might have heard me talk about the Coupla app before. So this is a couple's app that is really taking the world by storm. 
And it is such a great tool if you also want to get aligned this year. With over 200,000 happy couples using its features to stay connected, it truly is a game changer. So here's the deal. With a shared calendar, to-do list, and reminders, a date planner, and a chat, it really has everything that you need to prioritize your relationship and stay aligned in 2024. Now, this is especially helpful for my fellow stepmoms who can get blindsided by schedule changes with the ex. Couple can help you communicate and manage your schedule so you do not get surprised by a last minute schedule changes. The calendar also allows you to prioritize date lights and quality time with your partner, and you can seamlessly navigate the calendar with conflict and scheduling challenges that just arise from juggling work and kids and exes and all the things. Couple also has the only task manager and to-do list specifically designed for couples. Beyond simply managing groceries, couples also utilize these lists to organize everything from planning their next vacation or managing a home renovation, communicating about goals or planning an exciting date night and keeping track of gift ideas for partners and kids. Like there's so many things you can communicate about with this app. So Coupla is offering a 50% discount off annual subscriptions for any of my listeners for the first year. So all you have to do is enter Jamie via the link in the show notes below. You can also download a couple of from the app store. And then after the onboarding on the subscription page, you just click redeem offer and then enter the code Jamie to get your discount. So again, you can download a couple of from the link in my show notes, and you can also download it in the app store, C-U-P-L-A. And after you go through the onboarding on the subscription page, you can click redeem offer and enter the code Jamie to get your discount off an annual subscription. To bring it back to just the present day, it's funny, just the stories that we tell ourselves when we're activated, when we're upset or when we're feeling triggered, you know, when my husband would be late, you know, from a work meeting or something like that the story that would go in my head is I'm not important. He doesn't value me. He's not respecting my time. Why isn't he calling to tell me he's late? Like all Mm -hmm. of these things, like he doesn't prioritize me. He doesn't care how I feel. Yeah. And I would be so upset and I would react and maybe, you know, send the text message or whatever. But really what happened is he got caught up in a meeting that he couldn't get out of. And in many cases, he doesn't even want to be in that meeting either. (laughs) So when he picks up the phone after to call, be like, oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry I'm Mm -hmm. later. I just got stuck. This was crazy once to kind of like debrief on it. I'm already stuck in that story. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of us can relate to that, right? So we're already gone in our story about like what has happened here based on our past when that's just like not even the case. Right. Like how quickly we can internalize it to be that. And it's similar to what we've been saying already is that when we're not doing this work, we are going to internalize it that way. We're not even going to consider what might be happening for the other person. They caught Mm -hmm. caught up. They don't want to be there. They're going to message as soon as they can because I do matter to them, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like it gets internalized immediately. The moment you're like, prioritization wound is activated. Here, what this means. Here's the story that I have. And the more work though, that we do around this, then the more possibility we offer ourselves. And that's not meant to be an invitation to make excuses for other people or exist in some delusional Mm -hmm. space, right? Obviously we have to have discernment, but it is like, oh, the more healing I do around this wound, the less it's going to automatically drop down and into this bucket. Mm -hmm. And especially the more I have conversations with a partner, the more known and seen that we feel by someone where we're like, hey, I do get upset quicker when things like this happen because here's my history. Here's my story. Here's what it was like for me growing up, right? Like I really questioned whether people saw me. I really questioned whether people thought I was important. I was like, everybody thought about all the other siblings, all the other kids, and no one was like focused on me, right? Like this is what I dealt with. This is what I grew up with. And I'm on this forever hunt of trying to feel important to someone. And so when I don't feel like I'm at the top of the list, it's really easy for me to drop into this space. That's a beautiful conversation to have with a partner. Ideally, someone who can hear that, not tell you that that's silly. Oh, come on, right? Like somebody who's actually invested in having that conversation with you and probably also sharing what their wounds are and what it was like for them growing up, right? Because they have a history as well. But it's in these spaces when we start to peel back these layers and have these conversations with our partners, sometimes our friends, siblings, et cetera, 
is like where expansion can happen and where we can start to challenge some of those stories where we're like, hang on, I have a teammate in my partner. We've talked about this. He knows that this is important to me. We've ironed this one over and over and over again, right? And like, and so the likelihood of it being that he doesn't care about me, that he's not thinking about me is probably lower because we had these conversations and my ability to trust that I matter to him is strengthening over time, mm-hmm. right? And like, those are the things when we have those conversations and we bring our origin wounds forward in relationship are what help us move through it relationally. Wounds really do need relationships. It doesn't have to be romantic all the time, right? But it's like, there's a relational aspect to this because we're looking to someone outside of us oftentimes to let us know whether we are worthy or we belong or whether we're a priority to other, mm-hmm. right? There's obviously individual work here, incredible individual work here, but ultimately our wounds are in motion when we are in relationship with others, right? When you're in a vacuum, it's not so hard or it's not as hard, I should say, than when you are in relationship with other people who put those wounds to test, Mm-hmm. That's so good. I'd love to talk about control. I always say there's so many stepmoms in my community who struggle with control. And it's like the universe is like, oh, you want to be a control freak? Well, how about you marry someone with kids and an ex and see mm-hmm. how that goes for you? It's, you know, I love when Gabby Bernstein talks about just how the, what is it? The world is our classroom and the people are our teachers mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. You just put in a situation yeah. where you, you need to learn those lessons. Yeah. Let's talk about control, the need for control, often where it comes from and what it's really about. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we know that, I think you said before, I'm a control freak. I think those are the words that you use. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. there's, There's a negative connotation with control. And I think it's very important that when we hold characteristics, traits, behaviors that we're like, oh, I don't like this. Like, this is terrible. I like want to get rid of it. I don't want to be as controlling, right? I don't want to be a control freak. It's very important for us to see this as a protective mechanism for ourselves. Okay. There's got to be a shift. Cause if you're like, ugh, I hate this thing about me. I wish I didn't have to do it so much. Like, reject it, got to get it out of here. Then we're at odds. Our relationship with control is at odds. We're not going to be able to work with it very well. When we can see it as something that's protective for us that's going to be very helpful. It's a beautiful reframe. In what way is control trying to protect me? So that would be my question first. I mean, you can sit with it. Anybody listening can sit with it. But what is this behavior trying to protect me from, right? If I were to put control down, I believe that X, Y, Z would happen. Am I supposed to answer this? Well, you don't have to, you don't have to be put on the spot, but if there is something that's very clear and obvious to you, you might mm-hmm. want to answer it. Well, it's something I've worked a lot on, so it's not as much mm-hmm. of an issue now, but before, mm-hmm. if I didn't have control over everything, I would think that it wouldn't be perfect and mm-hmm. things wouldn't get done perfectly. And, you know, people would see that mm-hmm. I wasn't doing this well. Cause there was a lot of people who, mm-hmm. you know, kind of had reservations about like our relationship and my ability Mm -hmm. to, I was always kind of the bad kid growing up. And I was always Mm -hmm. just trying to prove to everyone that I wasn't bad, that, you know, I could do this. And I was trying to prove myself to people because I really didn't feel like I was seen and, you know, prioritized as a kid. So Mm -hmm. I know that's where my control comes from. Yeah. Right. And if I don't do it perfectly, then I'll be flawed or it will be flawed. I will have failed. It will have failed. And if that's true, then what does that mean about me? not good enough. Maybe everyone does leave me like Mm -hmm. I'm not important. Mm -hmm. All of that. Yeah. I think it will very easily kind of trace us back to where our pain is, you know, what it is we're trying to protect ourselves from having to feel. If I am in control, if I can manage all this thing, if I can get you all to do what I need you to do, then I can present the illusion of something that tries to protect me from what I'm afraid of people see. Mm -hmm. You know, control is, it's an illusion, right? There are things that we can influence and there are things that we can affect. But the reality of it is, is that this like relationship with control that like, I'm going to be able to make this thing happen, right? Doesn't actually heal something. Mm -hmm. Almost prevents it. Almost is like a mask. Right. It's like 
could you brute force your way? Like, do we influence things sometimes? Can we control certain things? Like, yeah, we can control certain things, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't heal anything. Right. And I think when we do that tracing back to like, okay, so if you drop the control, here's what happens. And then if that's what happens, then what happens now? You know, if you go down that place and you're like, but all I do is I keep controlling the thing, then whatever is at the bottom of that swirl never gets to be addressed. Right. And that's what I mean by the illusion is that, oh, I get to pretend that things are fine here. I get to pretend that things are perfect here without ever resolving the insecurities and the fears and the doubts and the wounds that are driving this control in the first place. Yeah. It's so powerful when you figure out like what is actually going on. Yeah. I mean, listen, so many of us, right, struggle with control and if you have any children, I always say like any parent, you know, knows this relationship with control in such an intimate way, right? It's such a big one. And I think your audience is a lot of people who are in some type of parental role and people struggle with control constantly. And it's very clever. It convinces you that if you control X, Y, and Z, then you will feel or other people will see you in this particular way that you would like to feel or be seen. And when you start to really understand that that is, again, just a distraction away, right, that it is an illusion and also a distraction away from what actually needs to get felt and resolved, right? Like then you realize that ultimately what's happening is I'm just continuing to prolong the pain. It's not real, Mm -hmm. right? It's not real. If I successfully control something, it doesn't make the thing real. Yeah. Control, it stems from fear. Yeah. Fear, insecurity, unprocessed pain. Mm -hmm. Now in the book, you talk about relational Mm self-awareness, which I thought was so powerful. So the ability and willingness to honestly look at what tends to set you off in your intimate relationships and how you handle yourself when you feel upset. Mm. I don't know that really like, (laughs) because it's, you know, we don't pay attention to that, right? We have the event, we have the outburst or we have the conflict or whatever. Yeah. But how does our reactivity to things or our reactions to things, what messages are being shown to us there? Yeah. I mean, the reactivity is, it again, it's sort of this protective mechanism that comes in right from right, left field. Like it's, it's like, okay, we're ready to go to battle, you know? And you think about like, what does your reactivity look like? And I do say in the book that reactivity is a, it's like a neon sign pointing us directly to our unresolved pain, right? So this is a really beautiful indicator of people like, where should I start? It's like, yeah, think about where you're the most reactive. Think about the things that make your whole system light up where you're like, oof, like this really activates me, right? Because that's where you're going to find an origin wound. And reactivity is like, oof, the soldiers are coming in and, you know, mine, oh my gosh, my reactivity, how I would present is that I would become a point prover and I would need to be right immediately. So like if there was some conflict or something going on, my reactivity was like, I'm going to prove my point. I need to be right. And I remember before my partner became my husband, we were dating and we got into a conflict. I have no clue what the conflict was about, but I remember myself like doubling down, tripling down. I was like, continue to prove my point. And he's like, I got it. I got it. I understand. (laughs) I just kept going and going and going. Like have this out of body moment. And I'm like, Vienna, stop talking. You know, it's like one of those where you're like, just, you got to cut it out right now. Yeah, we got it. It's done. Like, this is getting a little bit much and I'm still going, finally I stop and woof, shame spiral comes in. I'm like, oh my God, like he's not going to want to be with me. It's so yucky and yada, yada, yada. I moved out of the shame really quickly and moved into curiosity, the benefits of being a therapist and like, okay, what's the deal with proving the point? What's the deal with needing to be right? What is that protecting me from? I got really curious about that, right? So instead of like, tisk tisk, oh my God, you're so controlling. Oh my God, you're proving your point. Oh my God. Like just curiosity, replace it. Curiosity, what does this serve? How is this trying to protect me? And ooh, beautiful little line into my family of origin of understanding I grew up with a father who was 
manipulative was a true gaslighter. And it wasn't towards me. It was directed towards my mother. And it was crazy making for her, quite literally. A lot of paranoia. And I saw the deep, 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 deep impact of being in relationship with someone who could masterfully move words around and truths around and be right and be very clear in making sure that the other person had to question, second guess what was real and whatnot. And as a little girl, I very clearly put that person in like power, control, safety over here, unsafety over there. Being wrong, not being right is not a safe place to be. It's a crazy making place to be. And when I connected that, ah, like it was such an aha of like, oh, like, of course, this need to be right is about creating safety for myself. Mm -hmm. And it's so powerful for us to understand like what our behaviors are in service of. It's not an excuse. Like I couldn't just keep doing that because like, oh, she just needs to be safe. So she's going to keep proving her point. Like that's not how it works, right? Like relationships will end if you continue to act out in this way, right? It really required a lot of, you know, TLC from me, but it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, like this is where my work is, but no wonder. No wonder this is how I'm behaving mm -hmm. in this space. This makes so much sense. And that's our invitation to work with these parts of our reactivity because oftentimes our reactivity is a disconnector. It pushes us further apart, right? It's not the thing that brings us closer together. It's not something that is healing, right? It's like our reactivity is oftentimes a breakdown in communication, a breakdown in conflict, a breakdown in boundaries, right? It's not something that moves us closer to connection, to healing, to expansion, to understanding ourselves and each other. And that's our goal. And it's possible. I mean, it's like for some people, I'm be like, oh, that sounds so nice. <laughs> that feels far out there. But it is very possible when we do this work and begin to understand these parts. And I remember sharing what I had discovered with my partner at the time who happens to be a wonderful partner who can hear things and understand them and hold them. It's a beautiful partnership to be in. And I know not everybody has that in a partner who can really like understand and listen and, and get it. But still, right, this work with ourselves, whether you have a partner, don't have a partner, have a partner who can't do that, doesn't to be on this inquiry and curiosity trip with yourself as much as possible, because we have to replace our reactivity with something. We cannot just keep going and going and going and expecting our lives to be peaceful and resolved and healed if we don't begin to change some of these behaviors. And listen, like, do I still point proof sometimes? Of course, but certainly nowhere <laughs> as often as I used to, because I have an understanding of what's happening in that space and what I need to tend to in that space and what I need to remind myself of where I am and with whom and in what year and decade and how old I am, I love that. all of those things. All of that gives us these little openings and points of access to work with these things differently. We have to learn to work with our reactivity differently. Otherwise, around and around on the merry-go-round we go. The loops. The loops. That's what happens. Of course it is. And our job is to disrupt that. And of course it's hard. It is easier said than done, but it is still possible to be done. And that's our work, mm -hmm. right? Is to figure out, to understand our origin wounds, to sit with those wounds, to work ourselves through these origin healing practices, and then to see the ways in which all of that stuff shows up in our relationships and the ways that we react and how we respond to when the familiarity and the historical stuff gets activated again. And how am I going to walk myself and us to a different outcome to a different ending? How are we going to do conflict differently? How are we going to communicate more effectively? How are we going to navigate these boundaries better? Right? And like really working together to do that. Mm -hmm. That's so powerful. Mm. Now, last question for you, just for the stepmoms and the people in the co-parenting relationships who are listening to this, from your experience as, you know, a therapist and, you know, actually your own personal experience, what do people in co-parenting relationships or even just parents in general, 
need to just be a little more cognizant of to prevent kids from, because I'm sure in your office, you've had people reflect back on, you know, their parents' Mm -hmm. divorce and how it made them feel and how that's, you know, triggered A, B, and C in their life. What do we need to be aware of and try to prevent from doing? I would say that one of the most important things for parents, co-parenting, step-parents, is be willing to repair as frequently, as often as needed. When we become too above it because they're children, they're kiddos, they're teenagers, like I can't apologize. I can't tell you that I misstepped here, right? That's the problem. Our race to repair is so undervalued. We're not meant to be perfect as much as control will try to convince you of that, right? We're not meant to be perfect. We're not meant to never get something wrong, say something wrong, disappoint. Even in this conversation, of course, like we want to minimize as much wounding as possible. But this idea that you're going to get through life without your child feeling any pain or any wounding at all is beyond out there. Don't even consider it. Mm -hmm. Minimize it as much as possible. But the reality of it is that we're going to disappoint. We're going to let them down. We're not going to prioritize them in every moment. They're going to feel upset sometimes. They're going to be hurt by something. We're going to forget about something. Like all of these things are going to happen. And your willingness to repair as quickly as possible and take ownership and accountability as quickly as possible is going to be the thing that repairs the relationship. That is what kids want. It's what adult children want. I don't work with tinies, but I do work with human beings who have all been kids before, right? Mm -hmm. And what everybody wishes and wants, right, is for there to be acknowledgement, ownership, and accountability. That's it. And so if you can do that in the process, not 20 years from now, not on your deathbed, but in the moment, right, then your relationship with those kiddos is going to be solid. And even if they hate you in the moment, doesn't matter. Even if they're like, fuck you, you're the worst. I don't wish you weren't here and not in my life and yada, yada, yada. They can spit everything they want to spit, right? They can tell you all the things that they want to tell you because that's where they're at in their lives. But you going through the motions from an authentic place, saying a sorry when you are sorry, taking ownership where you need to take ownership, being accountable where you need to be accountable, acknowledging where you misstepped, even if they're like, I still hate you. Okay, still hate me. And I'm still going to do this. That is so, so, so important. And it will be the gift that gives back down the road, even if it doesn't give back right now. Mm -hmm. You're human. We're all just human. We're all just human. And the idea that somehow you will supersede that is going to be the thing that takes you further away from what's actually at the core of all of this. You're human. You're messy. You're flawed. You're going to mess up, make space for it, and then acknowledge and own Mm -hmm. and be accountable and be in the humanness with them. So good. Well, thank you so much for this. This has been Unreal. As I was telling you before we press record, I've been excited about this conversation for so long and telling all the stepmoms in my community to be reading this book. I say the best resources for stepmoms actually have nothing to do with being a stepmom. Mm, It's about just mm -hmm. doing the work on yourself. And you have launched a podcast of your own. So I want to give us the lowdown on that as well. So everyone can kind of head on over there as well. Yeah. It's a really neat project because the podcast is anonymous guests who come in. So I like sit down with individuals or couples or families and they present an issue or a challenge that they're facing. And I get one hour. It's a one-time, one-hour consultation. I don't know much about them before we sit down. And it's to see where a conversation will lead. And it's really remarkable. It's really hard. (laughs) It's harder than therapy because therapy is rooted on like safety and trust and knowing people over an extended period of time. And, you know, we're strangers up until we sit down. And it's beautiful though to see what happens when there is a little bit of safety and a little bit of trust and where a conversation can go and what can be acknowledged there. So yeah, it's called This Keeps Happening. Love that. (laughs) Yeah. 
We're always looking for new guests. So if that is interesting to anyone, but yeah, it's a really neat show. And I'm amazed by the beautiful, brave guests who come on and share their story with me and the world. Yeah. You should be proud of it. It's very beautiful. I've been listening to a lot of the episodes and yeah, definitely. I love sharing real life stuff that everyone else is going through because there's so many people who could have very similar situations and it's like saving them from the therapy or Mm -hmm. inspiring them to go to therapy and do their thing. So, so beautiful. Oh, totally. I mean, I think it's why the book, because I storytell in the book so much Mm -hmm. and why the podcast again, where it's like, oh, nobody's speaking at me, right? I'm learning something about myself through someone else. And sometimes that can feel a little bit more palatable for us than being like, what's wrong? You know, like I have to take a close look at me and it's like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna see myself or I'm gonna see my partner. I'm gonna see my parent or I'm gonna see my adult child in this person's story. And sometimes that leads us to our breakthroughs in, you know, the most beautiful of ways. Mm-hmm. So good. Yana, this has been amazing. Exceeded my expectations. You're a gem. Thank you for taking the time. Ah, Thanks for having me. Enjoyed this conversation so much. That's it for this one. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if this episode resonated with you, I'd be so grateful if you could share it with someone in your life who you think could benefit from it. And if you haven't already left a rating and a review on iTunes, it really is the best way to support the show. And if you're craving more real talk and coaching and community, be sure to check out my membership, the Kick-Ass Stepmom community. 